You're listening to the Bowman of the Yard podcast. Exhibit J. Hello, hello, hello. Hello, hello, hello. Here we are for the Bowman of the Yard podcast. It's Exhibit J, Peter Crouch. Exhibit J indeed. J for James. Fantastic. Indeed. Uh, I'm Richard James, the author of the Bowman of the Yard series. Some of you might be familiar with that. It's a series of novels and short stories detailing the adventures and investigations of Inspector George Bowman from Scotland Yard. How have you been, Peter? Very well. How about you? Yeah, very well, thanks. Uh, Not bad at all. We hope you're well at home too. Uh, Now, Peter, have you noticed anything different? Look around you. Uh, Just glancing around. Not sure I'm seeing anything. Yeah, now look up to the ceiling. Oh, What's that? Well, it's a little parachute with a note attached to it. Where did that come from? Now, here's a challenge for you, because if you look just above the fireplace, there's a target on the wall there. I bet you didn't spot that. I didn't. Now, be very careful with this, because I'm handing you a loaded gun, Peter. Good grief. No, don't point it at me. No, oh, keep it down. Uh, oh. Now, can you hit the target to release the parachute? I'll give it a go. It's surprisingly heavy. OK. Whoa! Oh, no, 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 no. Try again. Try Very close. Try again. Oh. oh, yes, here we come. Right, catch that. Catch oh, the I've got it. That's it. Now, what do you see there inside the envelope, Peter? It looks like a list of what's coming up. So what's coming up on the Bowman of the Yard podcast this month? We have all the latest news. We have lots of letters to the Yard. We have another Yard. We have Mary Ann Yard, who is the author in the cells at Bow Street this month. And with the Smithfield murder finally filed away in the Scotland Yard archives... Stay tuned for a sample of the first chapter from the forthcoming Bowman of the Yard novel. Yes. How exciting. I know, that's what we're all about this month. We'll be talking a little bit more about this in the news very shortly. But yes, the fourth and, for the moment, final novel in the Bowman of the Yard series is on its way. As we know, there are a couple of short stories still to come. Uh, quick word about the short stories. Uh, they run alongside the four novels, really. There will be eight in all. At the moment, there are six. And the idea is they fill in the gaps so that by the end of the year, we'll have 12 Bowman of the Yard stories, four novels and eight short stories, each set in a different month of 1892. So here's a challenge, Peter. From the new year next year, in January, it would be possible to read a separate story every month running concurrently with Bowman's adventures throughout 1892, January to December. Wow. Should we do it? Yes, it's a, <laughs> the, the game is afoot. <laughs> right, let's have some Bowman of the Yard news. Extra, extra, read all about it. Well, now, the first thing to say, as Peter mentioned there, the Smithfield murder is safely filed away in the uh, Scotland Yard archives, but you can hear the whole darn thing on my YouTube channel. Just go over to youtube.com forward slash Richard James author, and you'll see a playlist there, the Smithfield murder, where you can listen again to all nine episodes of that short story. Alan Sartorius Jones who has a surname so distinctive that I used it in one of my short stories, said he really enjoyed the quality of the sound and the story is excellent. Well, thank you very much, Alan. Second bit of news is this, Peter. Do you have, let's call it, a digital assistant? Uh, Would that be somebody like uh, the lovely Alexa? Yes. If you have an Alexa from Amazon, she will now play you the Bowman of the Yard podcast. All you have to do is ask nicely. Now, I've tried this. I think the only fault is, from what I can understand, she starts from the very beginning. 
So uh, she goes right back to the Bowman of the Yard podcast exhibit A. Um, and I think you then have to keep telling to skip forward to the next one. Unless you can work it out, listeners at home. If you do, let me know at podcast at bowmanoftheyard.co.uk. Now there's a challenge. Exactly. The third and perhaps most important bit of news this month is that the fourth Bowman of the Yard novel is finally coming. It will be released this month, hopefully, all being well, by Sharp Books. And I wondered, Peter, would you like to hear the blurb? Oh, yes, please. I'm sitting eagerly waiting for that news. You don't look too eager. Can you just buck up a bit and... uh, Okay. That's... Oh, now you're looking eager. This is an exclusive never before heard. It'll give you an idea of what the story is and what happens to Bowman and some of his companions. This is the blurb for the final novel in the Bowman of the Yard series. Autumn 1892. Following a manic episode, Detective Inspector George Bowman recovers in Colney Hatch Lunatic Asylum. He's surprised when Elizabeth Morley, an acquaintance who had sought to offer him comfort following the death of his wife, pays an unexpected visit with news of an intriguing case. A mythical figure, christened Jumping Jack by the salacious press, has returned to the streets of London, leaving a trail of death in his wake. Bowman calls upon Sergeant Graves to act as his agent in the outside world, resulting in his erstwhile companion being subjected to the wrath of Graves' new superior, the recently promoted Detective Superintendent Callahan. Graves is taken off the investigation and ordered to look into an issue of fraud at the Royal Armitage Bank. As his inquiries continue, however, it becomes clear the two cases may be linked. As the killer strikes again and the citizens of London grow convinced they are in the grip of a supernatural force, Inspector Bowman must rely upon what's left of his wits, an improvised map of London on his bedside wall, and the memory of an investigation from his days as a detective sergeant. Does a series of crimes from a decade ago hold the key to the current atrocities being committed in the fogbound streets of London? Bowman must solve the crime from his hospital ward to enable his colleagues to confront the killer among them. Bravo, sir. What do you think of that? Oh, very exciting. Good. And a few recurring characters you might have spotted there. Uh, Callahan is back from The Devil in the Dock. We've got Elizabeth Morley returning from the first story, The Head in the Ice, you might remember. Yes. Uh, also, other returning characters include Jack Watkins, the editor of The uh, Evening Standard, again from The Head in the Ice, and uh, Duncan Wilson's favourite, Robert Tompkins, from The uh, Hampstead Garrotting, uh, also makes an appearance. It's tricky writing a final novel, tying up all those loose ends. Yes. And I'm sure there are a few that will remain untied, but because that, well, well, it doesn't matter because I can come back to them for a future series. So uh, if you spot any plot holes, let me know and I'll sort them out in the next series, which will be set in 10 years' time. <laughs> <laughs> and now, the title. Well, I'll save that for later in the podcast, but here are some suggestions from our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash Bowman of the Yard. Tom Hodden, for example, suggested the fly in the soup, because of course we're going with the same pattern of the something and the something. Rob Doyle suggested the turn in the road. And Matt Smith, very clever this, the last in the series. Nice. Sorely tempted by that one. Yeah. But anyway, (laughs) find out a little later on in this podcast exactly what the title of the forthcoming Bowman of the Yard novel might be. Let's have some letters to the Yard. Letters to the Yard. Right, well, the first letter we have is from our old friend Duncan Wilson. Aha! Uh-huh. Duncan says, Salutations, Richard and Peter. Ah, salutations to you, Duncan. Thanks for another set of cracking podcasts. 
Not only great Bowman news, but love discovering these new authors and the adverts are a real highlight for me. Richard, I'm excited for the next book, but wondered how you found the experience of writing for a publisher rather than writing for self-publishing as before. And what's the editorial process different? Just curious, feel free to tell me to mind my own business. I now have all the sharp book Bowmans on ebook, including the Victoriano short story collection. Godspeed, Duncan. Well, Duncan, I would never tell you to mind your own business. In fact, I was listening back, Peter, to um, Exhibit D, where we were in the Silver Cross on Whitehall. Ah, yes. Uh, pretty much on the day of lockdown. It was. And uh, brought back some very nice memories with Duncan there. Uh, well, Duncan, uh, how has it been different writing for a publisher rather than writing as a self-published author? Very different indeed. I suppose the thing you kind of give up as a published author is control. So when I was self-published, of course, I chose the covers for the first three books initially. Um, I'm even in charge of the date of release, uh, the price point, uh, and also things like the look of the interior of the paperbacks, the, the typesetting, the fonts, the layouts, and things like that. All that, of course, I give up as a published author, and Sharp Books takes care of all of it. In a way, I kind of miss that control. I'm a bit of a control freak. Um, but of course, the thing that the publisher gives you, I suppose, is a wider reach. So hopefully it means, through Sharp Books, many, many more people are discovering uh, the investigations of George Bowman. I have one here from uh, Cora Sorrell, who says, Your email today mentions the last of the current series of Bowman books out in October. It won't be the last altogether, will it? Say it ain't so. And that's from Cora, who's responding to my email. If you'd like to receive a monthly or so email from me, it's very easy to subscribe. Just go to bowmanoftheyard.co.uk and uh, sign up there. I'll give you some free short stories and uh, let you know the news every month or so. Well, Cora, there will be more Bowman books. I'm taking a bit of a break after this current sequence. Uh, So after the next two short stories and novel have been completed and published, I'll have a bit of a break to move on to other projects. But I do have plans for Bowman, as I think I said before on the podcast, a prequel series set 10 years previously and a sequel series set 10 years after. Um, But that's probably something for another day. Well, we've got another letter from uh, this one's from Sean Urry. He says, Hi Richard, I really enjoyed The Head in the Ice and the first two Bowman of the Yard short stories. I have downloaded the other short stories but want to read them in chronological order so we'll wait until I've read Mm. The Devil in the Dock. Anyway, I just wanted to say how much I'm enjoying them and your podcast too. Keep up the great work and I look forward to reading much more of Inspector Bowman's adventures. Thank you very much, Sean. Well, I'm, I'd be interested to know how far you've got now. This is an email from a while ago. And, and also, listeners at home, how far through the uh, the whole sequence are you? Are you just starting out, perhaps, with maybe the head in the ice or the short stories, the Smithfield murder and the hackney poisoning? Or are you waiting with bated breath for the next book? Have you read them all? Even the short story in uh, Victoriana, the bonus short story in the uh, Victorian anthology of short stories there. Let me know at podcast um, at bowmanoftheyard.co.uk. Finally, uh, from Sean Urry to Andrew Curry. Uh, this is upon hearing the news that I revealed on our Facebook page that the next novel features the death of a much-loved character. Uh, Andrew commented, Don't you dare touch a hair on Graves' curly head. Don't really want Hicks to die either. Who else can we kill? The landlord of the Silver Cross? No, not Harris, surely. What's he done to deserve that? Isn't there an Inspector Crouch somewhere in there as well? <laughs> yes, there is. Yes, but I'm saving him. He does crop up very briefly again in the fourth <laughs> novel. I'm saving him, Peter, don't worry. Uh, Morgan right. Jeffrey commented as well and said, if Graves dies, we riot. <laughs> and uh, Roger Smith commented, uh, please be Hicks. Ah, charming. Oh, poor Ignatius. 
I know, you'll have to wait and see when you read the fourth book. And in the meantime, here are some more title suggestions. Following on from The Head in the Ice, The Devil in the Dock and The Body in the Trees, Heidi Johnson suggests The Jack in the Box. Nice. Uh, David Hirsch suggests The Bee in the Bonnet. <laughs> and uh, Judith Barrow, probably quite appropriately for me, suggests The Foot in the Mouth. <laughs> well, thanks, Judith. Uh, I will reveal all later in the podcast the title of the forthcoming Bowman novel. In the meantime, send in your questions and comments via email. That's podcast.bowmanoftheyard.co.uk or you can comment on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com forward slash bowmanoftheyard. And while you're at it, why not subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you're listening to us on, whether that's uh, Podtail or Stitcher or Spotify or Amazon Music or Google Podcasts or Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review as well, just like Kira Doyle has on Apple Podcasts, who says, if you've not read any of Richard's books, you're missing out big time. Treat yourself. Absolutely. Thank you for that. And don't forget to leave your review and perhaps share us with your friends so they can hear us too. Now, Peter, I'm out of breath. So shall we hear from our sponsors? I think we should. Better babies is the slogan heard everywhere. Diet and exercise are your essentials for the mother. Your doctor for the diet and the Gossard maternity corset for your exercise. Thousands of mothers praise it, endorsed by physicians. The figure always looks trim and shapely in the Gossard maternity corset. Gives perfect abdominal support. Flexible feather bone used. Supported from the shoulders, the muscles of back and abdomen are relieved. In ordering, give present waist measurement without corset. Horse exercise at home. Personally endorsed by HRH, the Princess of Wales. The advantages of this unique substitute for horse riding are It promotes health in the same degree that horse riding does. It invigorates the system by bringing all the vital organs into inspiriting action. It acts directly upon the circulation and prevents stagnation of the liver. Vigors horse action saddle. The Neptune life-saving bathing suit for men and women. The simplest, most practical, most effective life suit ever invented. The essential feature of the Neptune suit is the rubber air chamber, concealed from view by being permanently placed within a double thickness of the dress, extending around the body under the arms, capable of inflation by means of the rubber tube hanging at the neck. Provided with the Neptune suit, expert swimmers are secure from danger if seized with cramps or exhausted. The Neptune life-saving bathing suit. Well, an, uh, an interesting bunch there. Not quite as interesting as the uh, chicken in spectacles that uh, we enjoyed last time. No, that was very good. But I, I must admit, <laughs> I'm, I'm curious about the horse training. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm sat here with my Gossard maternity corset on and my Neptune bathing suit, but uh, I haven't quite managed to get on the, on the saddle yet. No, it looks a bit slippery with that bathing suit on. I think that's uh, probably, yeah. you can't get much purchase, can you? Slightly um, suspect that, isn't it? The, uh, the horse action saddle, which is a complete cure for, for hysteria. Um, I mean, for women, one can only guess that perhaps it stimulated other parts of the body rather than the, the liver. Uh, as advertised. Uh, that hadn't occurred to me. I, I, I wasn't even going there. <laughs> Let's move on. Now, every month I think we, should. we have uh, an author locked in the cells at Bow Street uh, to give an account of themselves and their books. And this month it's the turn of Mary Ann Yard. 
Now, you might remember, Peter, uh, a few podcasts ago, I mentioned that I'd spoken to Marianne Yard as part of the Coffee Pot Book Club. Ah, yes. uh, Where she interviews authors and reviews new books. But she's also an author in her own right. Born in Bath in England, Marianne Yard grew up in the southwest, surrounded and influenced by centuries of history and mythology. Glastonbury, the fabled Isle of Avalon, was a mere 15-minute drive from her home, and tales of King Arthur and his knights were part of her childhood. She's the multi-award-winning author of the Dulac Chronicles. Set a generation after the fall of King Arthur, the Dulac Chronicles takes you on a journey through Dark Age Britain and Brittany, where you will meet new friends and terrifying foes. Based on legends and historical fact, the Dulac Chronicles is a series not to be missed. So, um, shall we take a trip down the stairs and see how she's getting on in the cells? Definitely. You're nicked. I have done my fair share of interviews and talks, but wow, Richard James really knows how to impress. I came here with good intentions, but before I knew it, I found myself in a headlock with a man twice my size. I was then, rather roughly, I might add, manhandled into this gloomy and depressing cell, which, just for the record, I am pretty sure is haunted. I am cold, I am miserable, and when I asked if I could use the phone, the inspector, if that is who he really is, looked at me as if I were insane. Me? Insane? I am an innocent victim, a case of mistaken identity. I must have been in the wrong place, at the wrong time much like many of my characters in the Delac Chronicles series. If Merton Delac were here with me now, he would already have a plan to get out. And to be fair, he has found himself in far worse situations than this. The dungeon he was thrown into in Brittany had not been swept for years, and he was found guilty without a trial. And yet, he still managed to get out. Fiction. Don't you just love it? My crime, if it is a crime that I am to be charged with, is my unfailing passion for historical fiction. So if I'm guilty of anything, it is this. I cannot stop shouting from the very rooftops of the Coffee Pot Book Club about how great this genre is and how you really should be reading it at every chance you get. I write historical fiction. I read historical fiction. I even take historical fiction books on virtual blog tours. If this is a crime, then lock me up and throw away the key. If it is not, then please let me go so I may continue to be an advocate for books that transport you back in time to a world that is foreign but strangely familiar. Let me go so I can introduce you to a bygone age of adventure and fun and love and passion and hate and romance. Wait. Someone is coming, the door is opening. I have penned my characters out of worse situations than this. I just need to keep a clear head. The inspector has brought a chair. He's sitting down. I shall smile, look innocent, and say, Inspector, how very nice to see you. I saw your wife yesterday. We had a lovely chat about your petunias. I'm so sorry about the slug situation. Listen. If I get out of this unscathed, remember you can find the Delac Chronicles on Amazon and you can always find me over on the Coffee Pot Book Club.
Well, thank you to Mary Ann Yard. Safely ensconced in the cells there for the time being, but we will let you out soon. Mary Ann is the founder of the Coffee Pot Book Club, as she mentioned there. She's been a professional reader since 2016, and in this time, Mary Ann has reviewed many books for the big and small publishing houses, as well as books penned by her fellow indie authors. Mary Ann is also an editorial reviewer for the Coffee Pot Book Club, and uh, she's been a judge for a prestigious historical book fiction award for the last three years, as well as being a top reviewer on NetGalley. So she knows her stuff. Pleasure to have you in the cells, Mary Ann. Thanks for being our guest this month. Well, I've been pondering uh, this month, uh, as I normally do, Richard, and this time I've been pondering about the governor himself, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. So I've been reading up a little bit about the good man, and uh, he's an author, as we know, journalist and doctor. Uh, he was a strong campaigner against injustice, an excellent storyteller, as we know, and a multifaceted sportsman. Although primarily known as a detective novelist, he didn't stick to any single genre. He also wrote fantasy, science fiction and romance. Here are a few other facts about him that I love. Uh, he rewrote his first novel that was lost. At the age of 23, Doyle wrote his first novel, sent it to a publisher. Unfortunately, it didn't reach the required destination. He had to pen it down again from memory. Oh, can God, you imagine? It's a nightmare. It is a nightmare. Oh. No, I, I, I think I'd give up and walk away. Really? Yes. Uh, he was also a keen cricketer and footballer, playing as a goalkeeper under the pseudonym A.C. Smith, the Portsmouth fo uh, Football Club. Mm -hmm. uh, he believed in fairies. So, oh, wow. as it, strange as it may sound, he's said to have spent a million dollars promoting validation that fairies exist. Uh, his book, The Coming of the Fairies, addresses the supposed authenticity. It was a photograph of a girl surrounded by fairies, which was a hoax, that prompted him to believe in them. Oh, yes. Uh, the Cottingley Fairies, I think they were, weren't they? That's right. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Mm. Um, he also solved some mysteries himself, uh, like his famed character. Doyle was a detective of sorts. Uh, for example, he used the Holmes method to solve the murder of Marion Gilchrist, a wealthy 82-year-old woman from Glasgow. Yes, now there's a book called Arthur and George as well, which details another crime that he investigated. Um, I think it cleared a sort of a, a rather well-to-do country gentleman from a series of uh, cattle mutilations. Quite a gruesome read, but a true story. Really interesting. I think there's a there was a television show about that as well, I think, back yeah, in the yeah, yeah. 80s or 90s. Um, right. He also was thought to have bought back the dinosaurs in a sense. So when the world had all but forgotten about the existence of dinosaurs, uh, Doyle authored The Lost World, and thus bringing dinosaurs back into mainstream consciousness. Uh, the yeah. books become highly influential, inspiring movies like King Kong and, uh, King Kong and Jurassic Park. Mm -hmm. uh, and finally, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle died in his garden on July the 7th, 1930. Holding a flower in one hand, he uttered his final words to his wife, You are wonderful. Oh. Well, that's heartbreaking, isn't it? And from one wonderful person to another, over to you, Richard. <laughs> Peter, you say the sweetest things. Uh, what a, I mean, a, a really interesting character, a polymath, uh, almost a renaissance man, had an interest in all sorts of things from science to the supernatural. Yeah. Interestingly, that he was a man of science, and yet he did tend to get caught up in, in the whole fairies thing and uh, also the belief in spiritualism was a big thing for him as well. It's strange that he, he held those two views, very strange. Yeah, he really wanted to believe, didn't he? He did indeed. Now, just before we go, I know everyone has probably been hanging on to hear the title of the fourth Bowman book. So perhaps it's about time I should put you out of your misery. Thank you for all your suggestions. Like, for example, Tom Hodden suggested The Ulcer in The Unmentionables. <laughs> uh, or again, Alan Sartorius-Jones, who uh, suggested The Truth in the Water, which is rather interesting. Oh. But anyway, finally, let me put it to rest. The title of the fourth novel in the Bowman of the Yard series is... The... Time, please, gentlemen! 
Let's have all your oh, No, oh. I don't believe it. How could you do that to us? I know. I said, well, the clock has beaten us again. Well, if you want to know the title of the fourth and final, for the moment, novel in the Bowman of the Yard series, just go to bowmanoftheyard.co.uk and sign up for my newsletter. Or you can like Bowman of the Yard on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash Bowman of the Yard. Follow me on Twitter at Richard N. James. And I promise you will be the first to know when the new title is announced. Peter, nice to see you again. Nice to see you too, Richard. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bowman of the Yard, Book Four. Chapter One. Hot off the press. Temperance Snell knew Ludgate, and Ludgate knew Temperance Snell. His attire alone marked him out from the crowd. Only this very morning he'd pulled on a pair of garish mustard-coloured trousers that were so short they swung around his ankles. Half-masts, his fellow drinkers called them. His patterned spats were buckled loosely about a pair of fine leather brogues he'd won in a bet. He hooked a thumb into the pocket of his brocade waistcoat. It was trimmed with fur about the collar and fastened with shining silver buttons. A heavy purple frock coat hung from his shoulders like a cape and an ostentatious top hat was jammed on his head. He was never seen without it, nor without the ostrich feather that bobbed from the band about the brim. Finally, a tatty scarf was thrown about his neck. Catching his reflection in a mirror by the bar, Snell took a certain pride in the fact that no colour was a match to another. He was a symphony of corduroys, velvets, cottons and silks, a sight to make all eyes sore. Still only 32, and having only spent time in a debtor's prison just the once, Snell had done well for himself. He loved to tell the story of how he'd been discovered as a newborn on the steps to a nunnery in Southwark. It was partially true, at least, and far more romantic a tale than the truth of the matter. In fact, he owed his life to the dalliance of a nun with a gardener come to tend the nunnery orchard. He was sent to the workhouse aged five and never knew the comfort of a mother from that day. No matter, he thought to himself as he downed the dregs of his ale, London had been mother enough for him. The city had taught him, fed him and clothed him, and even afforded him a little status. As a boy, he'd learned the best places to escape a whipping from the workhouse masters. The wilds of Hackney Marshes had been his favourite haunt. There he had spent hours building dens, whittling sticks, and learning to catch the geese that grazed there in the mornings. He grew into a lanky lad, but he already had a magpie's eye for the finer things. He had put his nimble fingers to work in the markets of Covent Garden and had soon amassed enough to start his own business, lending money to the market traders when they were short. But he had overstretched himself. Just as he had begun to count himself a respectable man, he found himself on the bad end of a wager. Together with the failing of three or four of the traders who owed him money, it was enough to leave him penniless and in jail. Strangely, he had rather taken to imprisonment. He had found the other inmates to have generally fallen on hard times rather than be of the criminal class. There was even a gentleman among them, a knight of the realm no less, or so he had claimed. Sir Ranulph Fernsby delighted in telling tales of his downfall. He had, he would declare to anyone who would listen, invested in copper where he should have invested in steel. 
in amethyst where he should have invested in diamond, and in tea where he should have invested in sugar. It was under Sir Ranulph's tutelage that Temperance Snell had learned to read and write. There was no greater gift, Snell came to realise, that any man could give another. The knight required nothing in recompense for such a service, beyond the company that Snell was happy to give. The gift of learning served him well upon his release. Snell noticed how much of the world was suddenly open to him. He devoured books on history and commerce and, bit by bit, began to improve himself. Having secured employment at a local printworks, Snell made his way up from a junior underclerk to manager of the print floor within three years. His wage meant he could afford a smart set of rooms near Ludgate Circus, a short walk from his place of work, and, crucially, the Blackfriar. Snell cast his eyes round the snug bar. The Blackfriar occupied a wedge of land on Little Water Lane, just north of St Paul's Station. As a result, it was the most peculiar shape narrowing at one end so that barely two men could stand shoulder to shoulder. Legend had it that the court of King Henry VIII had drunk there. Snell mused that it must have been a very small court indeed, or at least most peculiar in shape. Downing the last of his ale and noting that it tasted for all the world as if it had been brewed in the time of the bloat king himself, Snell tipped his hat at the barmaid and made for the door. He took a rolled cheroot from his pocket as he stepped onto the street, striking a match against the heel of his shoe to light the soggy paper between his lips. Turning his collar up against the fine drizzle, Temperance Snell passed under the London, Chatham and Dover line that rose above him in the mist. A late train thundered over him, seemingly shrieking in pain as its wheels struggled for purchase on the curve of the line. The streets beneath the railway were ill-lit. Snell kept to the middle of the road as he walked. He had learned to stay well clear of the arches and alleys once the sun had dropped behind the brickwork. They were home to the vagrants and pickpockets that teamed across the city by day and weren't above making a little extra by night. He could hear their chattering and cackling as he passed. As he turned the corner into Union Street, he was surprised by a bedraggled figure propped up against a filthy wall, his eyes rolling back in his opium-addled head. Snell cursed beneath his breath, partly in disgust and partly in pity for the man. He was careful not to judge the vagrant too harshly. He knew that, had his own life but taken another road, he might well have found himself in such a condition. Finally, just as the drizzle turned to a harder rain, Snell turned onto Waithman Street and saw the printing works ahead of him. Just as he expected, a single light burned from a middle window. Had the rain not been slapping against the cobbles beneath his feet, he might very well have heard the hiss and rumble of the printing press. Snell was pleased that business was booming. The public's appetite for adventures and stories featuring unsavoury characters and more unsavoury crimes had kept the printing works busy. An unexpected order for a new run of Penny Dreadfuls had seen Snell run the presses through the night. Printed on cheap pulp, they would be on their way to newsstands, shops and libraries as the sun rose, the ink barely dry on the page. Though happy with the income they provided, Snell disapproved of their contents. He had a feeling that the whole of London could be improved if the populace tempered their appetite for the gory and instead fixed their minds on higher things. By the time he reached the entrance to the printing works, the rain had turned the debris on the road into a filthy sludge. It had already made a mess of his spats. 
Reaching for the bunch of keys at his belt, Snell leaned his shoulder to the door and stepped gratefully inside. Swinging his hat from his head, he tapped the rain from its brim and replaced it back upon a thatch of thick blonde hair. Gaunt, he called, as he stepped gingerly up the concrete stairs. How goes it? He was not surprised he could not be heard above the din. In two or three hours the sound would be louder still. By then the print floor would be full. Typesetters, printers and their apprentices would be hard at work to produce the morning's papers. The very walls would shake to the pounding of the presses. As Snell ascended the steps, something in the rhythm of the noise made him break his stride. The regular hiss and wump with which he was so familiar seemed somehow discordant. Quickening his pace, he turned off the stairs onto the print floor. The presses occupied a whole story of the building. In the guttering light from the gas jets placed at intervals around the walls, Snell could see the variety of presses he had accrued over the last few years. Hand presses and pedal presses stood cheek by jowl with their modern counterparts, the great hulking cylinder machines that were used for bulk printing. Snell had gone out of his way to purchase the older machines at a discount, recondition them and put them to work, thus freeing up the more modern presses to fulfil the larger contracts. It was a tactic which had led to a threefold increase in profits. He even had a mind to purchase a colour press. That, he thought, was where the future lay. For now, all but one of the presses stood idle, resting, it seemed, after their day's exertion. As he cast his gaze along the print floor, the arrhythmic pounding of Gaunt's press bothered him. Perhaps a belt was loose or a flywheel too tight. Snell shook his head. It was unlike Augustus Gaunt to be remiss in his maintenance. He knew little of him beyond the fact that he was a nervous man, but a hard enough worker. Snell had been happy to entrust him with the night's employment. Gaunt, he called again. How goes the order? The cylinder press that growled in the corner was driven by steam from the same furnace used to heat the building. Even in the chill of the October night, Snell could feel the warmth of the air around him. His nostrils thrilled at the familiar scent of ink and oil. Gaunt? It was odd that the man had not responded. Indeed, as Snell drew nearer to the machine, he could see no sign of Gaunt at all. Still, the irregular rhythm bothered him. The roll of the cylinder and the hiss of the pistons should have been in concordance, the one with the other. Snell often fancied himself as a conductor at a concert as he stood on the steps to his office by day. Each machine would play its part in a symphony of ratchet and steam, adding its individual rhythm to the beat of the whole. It was often all Snell could do to resist from raising his cheroot and waving it as if it were a baton. But Gorn's machine, he could tell, was out of time. There was an extra bump as the cylinder turned, a wrenching of gears as they made their displeasure felt at some obstruction. Snell dropped his eyes to the machine. Where he should have seen the smooth procession of paper beneath the cylinder, he saw the body of a man. He knew at once it must be Augustus Gaunt. His upper torso lay sprawled across the paper tray, his twisted legs dangling ungainly across the floor. The cylinder jumped in its moorings as it spun. Holding his hand involuntarily to his mouth, Temperance Snell could see the obstruction clearly. It was Gaunt's head. As the cylinder beat repeatedly against Gaunt's skull, Snell could see his skin had begun to peel away. His hair was congealed with a sticky mixture of blood and ink that seeped from the printing table to the floor below. Snell felt his stomach lurch. 
Breathing quickly, he leapt for the machine's controls. He spun the taps to cease the flow of steam, and slowly the drum came to a stop. He felt his feet sticking to the floor as he approached Gaunt's body, blanching as he realised he was walking in the poor man's blood. Snell was at a loss. What to do? he breathed. Peering closer, in spite of the horror of the situation, he could see the unfortunate man's face pressed against the plate. Augustus, he whispered, tentatively reaching out a hand. Nothing. Gaunt was clearly dead. <laughs>